Hey there, beautiful people. Welcome to Fanti, the podcast for all those complex and complicated conversations around the gray areas in our lives. I am dating primarily black, Jared Hill. Okay. I am Trayvell Anderson. (laughs) Coming up on the show today, Jared already told you, we are talking about the swirl, interracial dating, okay? It's going to be interesting, and we've got a great guest joining us. But first, we have a Pass the Popcorn. Jared, take it away. Yeah, so I only just got caught up on the back half of Abbott Elementary, um, the new season, and... First things first, I want to say, even with all of its acclaim, it is very underrated. The show is fantastic. Um, And while fans have been hooked into this will-they-won't-they of Janine and Gregory, there's another uh, love story that people are annoyingly focusing on. People on the internet machine have been questioning if Tyler James Williams is queer for any number of reasons uh, for anything that he's doing. And we've had interesting conversations here on Fanti and our feels about the ways that we see people trying to out other people on social media. But you've got to appreciate when someone on the other side of the fence gets it very right. The story over on the route um, does a great job of breaking down um, how this broke down, how this happened uh, comes from Chanel Janai and um, Chanel also is a new, uh, journalist here in Los Angeles. So shout out to her, um, and all of our journalists here in the community here in Los Angeles. Um, Tyler took his Insta story responding to this, uh, this speculation about his sexuality saying the following. Usually I wouldn't address stuff like this, but I feel like it is a conversation that is bigger than me. He says, I'm not gay. But I think the culture of trying to, quote, find some kind of hidden trait or behavior that a closeted person, quote, let slip is very dangerous. He went on to say, overanalyzing someone's behavior in an attempt to catch them, quote, catch them, directly contributes to the anxiety a lot of queer and queer questioning people feel when they fear living in their truth. It makes the most pedestrian of conversations and interactions in spaces feel less safe for our gay brothers and sisters and those who may be questioning. It also reinforces an archetype many straight men have to live under that is oftentimes unrealistic, less free, and limits individual expression. I've been very clear about the intentionality I try to put into using my platform to push back against those archetypes every chance I get. He finishes by saying, being straight doesn't look one way, being gay doesn't look one way, and what may seem like harmless fun in conversation may actually be sending a dangerous message. Happy pride to all of my queer and questioning brothers, sisters, and individuals. I pray that you feel seen in ways that make you feel safe in the celebration that is this month. What just hit for you? What just happened? What What is it? It's disrespectful, I'm sure. I just want to be clear. I was not laughing at the, at the statement. Uh, I was laughing specifically at happy pride to all of my queer and questioning brothers, sisters, and individuals. Oh, I don't get family claim. You know, I don't. I don't get a family. Uh, uh. Wow, it's never enough for you people, is it? It's just never enough. Getting named is not the right name. You just. I just thought it was funny. That's all. I just. I just thought it was funny. You know, because sibling is right there. Okay, it's right there, and we got individuals, which you know, obviously, no malice. I just thought it was funny. Anyway, go ahead. I think it's a. I think it's a. <laughs> we oftentimes see allies, and you know, we how we feel about that language around here. But like, 
having to come out and say things like this. And I thought like Tyler James Williams did a pretty good job, or at least that's how it came across to me. I also want to note Tyler's younger brother, Tyrell, shared a a tweet thread that really kind of highlighted a little bit more on this. And I, I appreciated it. And it was, it's many different tweets, but the, the last ones here say, one of the many joys of queerness that isn't talked about nearly enough is the act of complete reconstruction of one's ego. What you are is not what you've been conditioned to believe. So you get to create yourself in your own image outside any arbitrary social constructs or expectations to not just think outside the box, but to discover the great deception of our patriarchal society. There never was a box to begin with. Tyrell finishes by saying, we taught each other just how big the world can be. And when you decide for yourself who and what you are, what is authentic to you, that is how you can be a be an ally. And he says he wants to give his brother, um, Tyler, uh, flowers for the ways that he showed up for his younger brothers who were queer and really kind of deconstructing gender and having conversations with them and, and making it a safe space for them after they came out. So I, I really appreciated that. So just to let me jump in real quick. So just to cut through all of that, you know, iOS press release reading that you just did. The point is that Tyrell and their other brother are queer, uh, queer folks. And mm-hmm. the, the thread talks about Tyler's, you know, doing what he needed to do to, to show up for them. You know, here's the thing, though. I, I feel a few different ways about this. Because, right, like, yes, people people are always trying to figure out the sexuality, particularly of people in culture who are otherwise, quote-unquote, straight, right? And all of it is, is often t- latched into, you know, individuals... Uh, collective desire, right, of these individuals. And, you know, masculinity and identity and what these things mean or don't mean and all those other stuff. So part of me is like, you know, yes, big, you know, good on Tyler for using his platform, if you will, to encourage people to think differently, right, about this idea of trying to figure out, quote unquote, figure out folks' sexuality. Love that 10 out of 10, no notes, etc. or whatever they, the kids are saying these days. Now, I will also say, now there was a part of me mm-hmm, that was like okay well hold on because let me let me let me phrase it this way actually so i don't get in trouble uh-oh uh-oh i would love for the broader community to also listen to the queer people who have and are saying the exact same thing about the quote-unquote dangers, right, around trying to, you know, figure people out. And it is interesting to me, all of the kudos, right, that we are extending toward Tyler in this particular moment, and perhaps they are due. So yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's all I really had to say on this <laughs> specifically. I think this is the same kind of conversation that sometimes we see when white people speak up and say something great about race or they get it right on something to do about, you know, whatever it is about a marginalized community. But I also think it's important that like we are are thoughtful about the ways that we that we Uh, allow space for that because on one hand we want straight folks and allies or however we use that accomplice language or whatever to like step up and and stand out and and use their platform and use their privilege and stand in front of the line and in front of the front lines and all that kind of stuff and then when they do it though then we're like well i don't know why you're getting any credit 
And so like, it, well, hold on. And like, I think that we- That's we, not what I'm saying to be clear, but I would jump in afterwards. But I think that we we see this happen a lot. And like, sometimes it's warranted. And sometimes I'm like, I don't know what else we want people to do, right? And like with Tyler James Williams, I think this conversation has been happening around him for, for a while since Abbott has been out. And people always, you know, are always kind of questioning what people are- what people want and who they are in the in real world and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, I kind of teeter on how I feel about it. I do think that we've obviously seen plenty of, of queer trans people and people who aren't even necessarily under the, the leg booty community umbrella be able to have these conversations well. But like, I, I, I feel a little bit of a way. Well, so to be clear, my my statement is not an indictment on Tyler, right? It is it is a call to action on the broader world, right? To not reinforce, right, all of the isms and obias that are baked into this particular conversation. Tyler can do whatever the hell he wants. That's that's not what I was speaking to specifically. I will note, though, that, you know, this is why I believe that we should always, you know, instead of defaulting because to everybody being heterosexual, I feel like we should default to everybody being queer. I mean, now that I would stand behind. What would that do for us as a culture, as a community, as a world, as a society, right? If, if, if the foot was on the other shoe, if the foot was on the other shoe, if the shoe was on the other foot, and instead of trying to, to you know, starting from a place of, you know, heterosexuality, right, we started from a place of queerness or something else. I wonder how that might change or shift our conversations, one, particularly around, like, trying to suss people's, you know, identities out um, and, and this broader conversation about outing, but also about this, what... Tyler is speaking to in his message this this danger he articulates it as around you know that around what it can convey to people right who are questioning who are you know trying to figure themselves out whether on a a major celebrity type stage as he is on or just in you know our everyday communities and the intersections therein so you know everybody's a little gay I I mean, is something that I have heard people say. I don't <laughs> articulate that for myself, for clarity's sake. But anyway, let's go to break. And by some people, you mean you mean Lizzo, because um, everybody's gay, apparently, according to Lizzo. Oh, she does have a song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she does. We want to hear y'all's feedback on Tyler James Williams and this conversation more broadly about uh, allies and the ways that they speak up or the ways that they fail at it. You can hit us up on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Fantai Podcast. Use the hashtag Fantai Fam. When we come back, we're joined by Michael Street and we're talking about the swirl. Uh, interracial dating's coming up next. Are you craving a fresh, delicious, easy meal? Try Wild Grain and get their Bake From Frozen sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries delivered right to your door. Wild Grain is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. Unlike typical supermarket bread, Wild Grain uses a slow fermentation process that's easier on your belly, lower in sugar, and rich in nutrients and antioxidants. And every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. Plus, for every new member, Wild Grain donates six meals to the Greater Boston Food Bank. So you can eat good and do good all at the same time. I just recently uh, had one of the croissants. 
And I had it for breakfast with some eggs on the side. It was really wonderful. Um, y'all got to check it out, okay? And I love the pasta as well. You know, you just make your sauce and the pasta's already done. You just, you know, put it in the uh, in the boiler and you boil it from frozen. It's wonderful. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissant in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash fanti to start your subscription. Yes, you heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash fanti. That's wildgrain.com slash fanti, or you can use promo code fanti at checkout. Welcome back, beautiful people. If you are a Black queer person of a certain age, you've lived long enough to witness a few iterations of the discourse around interracial dating, okay? For the record, when I say interracial dating, I mean Black folks dating white folks. And here, in this conversation, we're talking about the queer people, to be even more specific, though I'm sure we will get to dating the other non-Black folks, too, in a minute. Now, most recently, we entered a new iteration of this discourse last week when Byron Perkins, who made headlines last year as the first openly gay HBCU football player, posted a cute little pride message or two to his boyfriend, who, spoiler alert, is a Caucasian. And as the community does... Threads and missives were posted on social media in comment sections and whatnot as people lamented the fact that yet another one has gone to the other side, okay? They did not like the fact that he was not dating the darker brother, as Langston B. Hughes once said. So now we have been waffling on if we'd have this discussion on the show for a few months at this point. Because we know we can get a little spicy. Um, but also because the convo never really feels generative to me. Mm-hmm. But what really tipped the scales was a recent IG Live that singer Duran Bernard did that Gay Magazine reposted on their page that I saw. Let's take a listen to a bit of it. And the most recent one was the little baby who was on, on a, a, a football team. That one. And the girls were going in. The girls are going in. And I also have to remind myself, like, listen, y'all got to give him a little bit of grace because this baby ain't said nothing derogatory about nobody, about black men. Okay? That's the only time we can really ring somebody up is when they're going to talk about who, who they with because over here on this side is blah, blah, blah. So, but I've just noticed a pattern. I'm like, dang. There really aren't a lot of black gay power couples but why do i care why do i care see that's the part when i have to when i have to step into my own self and have a conversation during why do you care i don't know i don't know why i care is it is it is it the representation that i would like to see now that question that duran poses to himself why do I care? It hit me in my shondo, okay? That act of self-reflection amid the discourse, you know, it felt and it feels perhaps a little generative in a way that I think the conversation is not often. And so I wanted to bring it here, okay, for us to discuss. But before we get there, joining us for this conversation is a return guest, okay, writer and editor and fabulous journalist, one of my good friends, Michael Street. Welcome back to the show. Hello. 
Thanks for having me. Hello. <laughs> you sounded very timid there, my cow. Well, you know, I like to start very demure. We'll get into the stuff later. <laughs> you said I'm coming in hot shortly. Okay, so to get us started, I first want to, before we even get into the actual discourse at hand, I wanted to ask you both, how has the idea, the thought, the concept of interracial dating showed up in your life, particularly as you were coming into yourself, as you were growing up? Like, what were you raised to think about interracial dating? I ask because, for moi, that old Negro adage of, if she can't use your comb, don't bring her home, is what I was told. Oh. You never heard that, Jared? Michael, you've heard it. I see you smiling. There is South Carolina. Exactly. Yes. Shout out to South yes. Carolina. I love black people. But yes, if you, if she, listen, she being the operative word here, if she can't use your home, don't bring her home. And you know, it was just, it was just like com- a common saying around the house that, you know, folks felt the need to to reiterate over and over and over. And so I'm interested for you all, what was the discourse, the conversation, if any, you know, in your own particular communities around Black folks dating, especially white folks? Michael, would you like to jump on in there? I mean, I mean, we didn't, I didn't really have, I don't really remember any conversation. I know that I didn't have conversations with my parents about dating that I can recall besides, you know, when I came out, it was like, don't bring no man home. So that's all I recall. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I do remember one Easter in particular, we like, it was the whole family got together. And one of my uncles that I don't think I had met before had a white, like wife, fiance, something, I don't remember. And I remember being like, Oh, I didn't know there were white people in the family. I was very confused <laughs> because we don't. There was nobody else in an interracial, and it, I don't. I don't even even mean just black white. I mean like all of us was niggas. So like I don't. <laughs> that was very. And she was like German, and so it was very and like not German. Like oh, I have Aunt German. Like she like from Germany. It was clearly she was German enough that like I met this lady one day and knew she was German. Like mm-hmm. and so. um I remember like the ride home. I don't remember the specifics of the conversation, but I remember that being a whole conversation about this white German lady. But otherwise, <laughs> I don't really recall like our family really discussing anything like that because I think it was just so much of the, I don't think we needed to discuss it because I think that there were so, like it wasn't like there was anyone who was dating interracially. Mm-hmm. And in fact, as far as I know, my sister and I are the only ones that <laughs> interracially. Like my father is one of four. My mother is one. Is there's two of them, and all of them were with other black people. So yeah, that that's I don't really have. You know, it was never really a conversation with mm-hmm. my family. Jared, what about for you? I would say that for me, it was not ever a direct conversation about do this or don't do that. It was always very much like queer stuff and things about gay folks. It was always in the conversations about other people. 
right? Or the conversation about someone you saw on TV or conversation about something in church that was always kind of around the idea. Um, I did have one uncle that had a white wife for a while um, and then they divorced. And like, I remember we were still close to her even when they broke up. And like, some of us were invited to her wedding when she married a new person. And like, that was the moment when I realized like how different it was. Cause we were the only black people at the wedding. She married a white guy. And like, everyone kept coming up to us at the wedding. Like, Oh, hi, you must be so-and-so's family. And we were like, how'd you know? Yeah. What, <laughs> what pointed that out? Right. Like, and so it was like, that was like, as a kid, I remember being like, Oh, this is different, but there wasn't, really like direct conversation that that got saved as a core memory that was like do this Mm. or don't do that or don't date this person or that kind of thing it was always something that i would hear referenced and then i've i've dated probably 97 percent black people right black men specifically and like the one time i dated someone white i remember like feeling a way about it like oh this is this is going to be an interesting conversation to have if i have to bring it up with my family or if i ended up you know having them meet friends and stuff like that i knew that was going to feel interesting follow up quick follow up why why did you how how and why did you know it would be interesting he was like the memoirs i'm gonna have to explain this <laughs> because i knew this episode was coming one day right like i know that this <laughs> like this conversation I'm always very aware of my story. Um, Well, because like interracial dating is such an interesting nuanced thing with black folks, right? Like the ways that we engage non-black people romantically or even like as friends, right? Because I feel a way about dating people who don't, I I feel a way about dating black people who don't have black friends, Mm. right? If I scroll your Instagram and all the other people are white, that's a red flag to me. I don't want to be the black friend. Right. And have to deal with the white shit. And so, like, that's something that has always been on my mind. Michael, I can see you want to say something. Well, because I do, I did when I was in high school. So I started dating early. I'll get that out of the way. And I do remember when I was in high school, not my first boyfriend, because my first boyfriend was black, but I started seeing this white boy. And I do actually remember, you know, it was never a thing with my family because my family didn't know. But there was a situation where, he made it clear that, like, we couldn't let anybody know mm. that we were dating because it couldn't get back to his family because mm. it was going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, you know, Travel, I don't know if you remember Dixiana, but, like, that was the part mm-hmm. of time. So he was like, oh, no, um, <laughs> you know, we can't be. <laughs> and, like, I knew what that meant. And so, um, it, which was funny, a whole other conversation because they were, like, fine with him being gay. But the black thing was a was a, a step too far. But he was like, they were not gonna be fine with that. <laughs> Absolutely not. Well, and so I know that's not what we're talking about. They said the white devil is a lie. <laughs> well, uh, you know that's not what we're talking about. But I do remember that. So it, there was a thing. It just wasn't with my own family. Now let's like I want us to. You know, we've set the stage about like how perhaps our upbringings might be informing our positionings in these discourse. At least that's what popped in my head and reason why I asked that question. Now I want to move into each of your individual experiences with this topic of interracial dating in community, right? Around other Black queer folks, right? Like I said, we've been having this conversation about the interracial dating thing for a little minute. 
right? And it, it pops up and it has various waves. And Michael, one of the reasons why you are here, although I asked you before I remembered this particular reason as to why you should be here, is because when I was at Extra Magazine, you wrote a piece about Justice and Nick, who are both Black gay boys, and their particular relationship. And a piece of that article, we'll drop it in the show notes, a piece of that article talks about, right, this conversation around interracial dating, around the lack of what seems like, you know, the lack of Black gay couples, Black queer couples, right, in the industry with a particular level of of success and visibility, and how, because of that, right, so many folks, even in this discourse, you know, always feel a way um, when we see another Black gay man in particular, Black queer man in particular, in a relationship with somebody who's not Black, specifically white. Um, and so my question is, in your own individual communities, like how have you seen this discussion pop up and what stands out to you from what folks have been saying around you? We'll start with my count. Okay, so... Because you're the guest. I, you know, it's really interesting because in, like, real life, at least the girls I know and talk to, like, we don't talk about this unless it's, like, a a discourse elsewhere. Like, Mm -hmm. it is interesting because I do have friends where it has come up. We have chatted about it very, you know, we don't really go into depth. We chat about it very shortly. People kind of say how they feel about their own personal dating experiences. I have a lot of Black gay men in my life who are like, no, I specifically date Black gay men. Like, that is something that I make a very conscious effort to do. And, like, you know, we have discussions about that. But, you know, we don't really discuss the, in the ways that social media does, discuss, you know, whether or not there are enough celebrities that are Black and gay. It has come up in passing, but it's just not Mm -hmm. something that we, I think, put a lot of weight on, um, which is a part of the discussion that I think Duran was kind of getting at. It's just that like the reality is, is whether or not we see that at that very specific level, which we can have a conversation about the worthiness of that and what that means or whatever about that level. The reality is that like, if you are in community, community with other black gay or queer, I wanted to note before that justice is queer, not gay. Um, but received if if you are in community with other black gay and queer people, the likelihood that you know personally absolutely black gay couples or black queer couples is high, right? And so whether or not you see it at that specific level does not mean that you don't see it and you don't know it's possible. So I think that that is why we don't discuss it because because we see it. I'm in community with black gay people and I see them with each other, and so like I don't. Like, yes, we can theoretically discuss the celebrity or whatever, mm-hmm. but, you know, mm-hmm. it's not really pushing me because, you know, I know it's possible because I see it, you know, not on TV, but literally, you know, at clubs, at parties with me, you know, so. Jared? This came up for us as a prospective conversation again after Jonathan Majors in the last few months here, right? And so seeing the Jonathan Majors story come out with him and, you know, some alleged abuse and... Uh, it being a white woman, this was, you know, weeks after Creed 3 had just come out. And like, this is how I feel like it comes up in conversation quite a bit uh, in my friend circles, because I find that we end up discussing it. And there's always like a, there's always someone who will make a comment like, Tell you heard it was a white woman. 
And it's like, what? And they're like, oh, I didn't know that. And like, there's that's always like a part of the conversation, right? <laughs> and like, whether or not that's judgment or just information or getting a reaction or whatever it is, like, it's always a part of the conversation, right? And then um, even if we take that story a step further and hearing that um, he's dating Megan Good now, and it's like, oh, it's a black woman. Now. And like the way that race plays in those kinds of dynamics. I know for like queer folks, um, I have plenty of friends who are in interracial relationships. I have dated, like I said, one white man over the years. And the conversation about interracial dating is always an interesting one because you and I talked about like, who do we have as a guest on this conversation to be able to bring in and be a part of the discussion about what we want to do? And like, how do we want to think about how having someone who is dating interracially impacts the conversation itself. And I think you actually had really interesting perspective on that and how you wanted to frame this conversation. Well, I just said that if we were to have a guest who is currently in a relationship with a white person, married, dating long-term, engaged, whatever, that changes the conversation. It just does right because of 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 who that person has to go home to versus having a conversation with i've never dated a white person um well i dated a half white person he was half white half mexican but i've never dated a white person um what i don't think you can say that i didn't, i wasn't the one making the face but i don't think you can say that <laughs> that was his ethnic makeup anyway it was not mexican oh well <laughs> I just wanted to say Mexican ain't a thing. It's not. It's uh, not. Just want to put that out there. But we can keep going. Not y'all lambasting me on my own show. Um, anyway, but so like that's my history. But I, I know that both of you have dated white people and uh, and and but aren't necessarily like currently engaged. Right. And so I just think it, it would have changed the conversation and it might still be a necessary conversation. I'll actually suggest um, 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 John Paul Higgins podcast, Black Fat Femme, did an episode a couple months ago on this interracial dating um, conversation. And John Paul has a white partner. You can hear their perspective on their podcast, please do check it out. But it's just a it's a different conversation. Um and so that's why I I didn't I didn't want to invite somebody who was currently, you know, involved in that particular way with a white person because I just think it, it it changes the conversation. Um but it leads me to this question of, you know, why do we care as uh Duran propositioned, right? Because uh, like, why do we care about what someone else is doing, right, with their body, with their love and desire? Um, what impact is it having on us, especially in light of what you said, Michael, in terms of, you know, I know Black gay couples, right? So to to your point, like, I don't, it'd be great to see it on screen and in Hollywood and on the red carpets, right? But I could also, you know, go down to, you know, the Quickie Mart, right, and run into two black gay men that have been together for, you know, five years right now that I know. I mean, I think there's a lot of things there. Uh, I think that one is that like, Mm -hmm. is that you do look at the, the, the micro and, and, and see what that says about the macro. Right. And so you look at specifically this group of highly visible black gay men. And it does beg the question that in this group of highly visible black gay men, why is it a, a tendency, a trend 
um, that those that are publicly partnered are not publicly partnered with Black men, particularly if we know that we see that every day. So it does beg the question mm-hmm. of why. is Does that say something about people who have a propensity be, to be with white men? Does that say something about whether those white partners in some way allow them? You know, what what does that say? Why is there not more, right? If, mm-hmm. if, if like we're saying, that we can see that in every other instance, right? Because the other uh, thing that is important that a friend of mine was pointing out, um, which I agree with, is that it's not even that there are not Black gay power couples. They are. It's just that, like, mm-hmm. they are not public-facing celebrities, right? It's that we know Black gay couples that are very successful. Mm-hmm. They just aren't Hollywood celebrities. And so it does beg the question of why in this specific space there is such a... This is such a trend. And, and, and does that say something about culture? Does that say something about gatekeepers does that say something about you know something within within black gay men within you know the things that we have been taught right i think that a lot of times when this conversation happens um people do not love to to sort of look to him or think about him in in terms of the points that he's made about this but i think jeremy o'harris made a lot of really interesting and important points okay slave play around this is that Right, slave play. So, you know, he sort of begs the question of, I think a lot of people took slave play and what he did there as sort of he was saying a statement about this, the issue of interracial dating, when in reality, he was kind of just trying to pose questions and like tease out instances. And from there, start a discussion as opposed to saying that like, Mm -hmm. this is an answer. And so in amongst those questions, the question that he wants to pose in well, one of the questions that he wants to pose is that in a world where black men are told they're not beautiful, in a world where gay men are told that they are not deserving of love, is it incomprehensible that a black gay man would think that they are one not uh, deserving of love, and that they are that two another black gay man that looks like them mm. is not deserving of their love and mm-hmm. is also not attractive? You know what I mean, mm-hmm. like. If the world is telling you all of those things, is it incomprehensible that like you would internalize those things and then that would come out through your dating habits? It's not saying that it is. But it's offering the question. Right. And so another question I actually posed, I wrote about Nelson Ellis's death for Vice years ago. And I wrote about the character Lafayette Reynolds. And when you look, I don't think any of his partners were black, um, but most of them were not black. Most of his johns were white, but then, you know, also his boyfriends were white and then he had a Hispanic boyfriend, whatever. Anyways, and so in that piece, I beg, I posed the question of whether or not, because I thought living in South Carolina, I knew that it was common for black men, particularly upwardly mobile gay black men to be with white partners. And I posed the question of, does it subconsciously to black gay men do white partners sort of pose this sort of like this access point to to a privilege that we could not otherwise have proximity to Mm. Um, because of our blackness that excludes us from that Mm. privilege do these white partners like give us access to that privilege in a way that we could otherwise not Mm. get like attain um and i think you know i don't know but like great question it does beg the question and Further to that point is that, like, this is a question that we 
wrestled with in the 90s and the 2000s around black straight people because all the black straight, mm-hmm. you know, athletes had white partners, right? And so like this also, I think it's something that we must acknowledge is that like we can't have this conversation about black gay men dating white gay men in a vacuum. The reality is that we saw this right. in the macro of black people at large. There were so many black celebrities mostly male who had who all had white partners um and so i think that like you know is this a black gay issue or is it a black issue or you know i think yeah a lot of questions well so i think to that point um because travel you're asking like why do we care right and why do we have this why do we continue to have this conversation in the myriad different ways that we do and like i think about this point that michael is making at the end like this is bigger than a black gay issue right and i think about how uh, I, I think it was a Cheerios commercial with a biracial couple and like mm-hmm. Twitter and Instagram and all of the internet was like mm-hmm. so frustrated. And this was years and years ago. But I remember thinking to myself, like, I am always seeing an interracial couple in a commercial, right? It's never two black people or it's very rarely two black people that love each other or two brown people that love each other. There's always like a mixed race situation. And like, I'm totally here for mixed race dating, right? Interracial dating or however we want to word that. But like the idea that it always has to be the image in the media for the commercial, for the TV show, for the film, for whatever the casting is, it starts to do this thing where it's like, why is this the only image that we get to see of Black folks being able to love each other, right? Or or Black folks being able to have love. And I remember uh, a friend who's an actress and she was doing a lot of commercials. She was talking about how she would often advocate to be able to wear a a wedding ring when she was playing a black woman in a a, a a person in a commercial, she was like, yeah, the, the black women that they have me playing in commercials are never married, right? There's never a ring. They're never in a relationship. They're always single or they have a white partner. And I just thought like, the, I, I started paying attention to how many black women on commercials and TV shows are wearing rings, right? And how often they are paired with a white partner or the black the black male characters paired with the white woman and how we're continually having this conversation about like, why do we only get to see these kinds of images? I do think going off of both of the things you, you both just mentioned, I do, I think it's important to state explicitly, right. The, the history uh, when it comes to these conversations, particularly around interracial dating, right? Like, you know, I feel like lurking, in the ether of all of these conversations is a, you know, it's Loving v. Virginia. It's, you know, Emmett Till. I was going to say, it's giving very Supreme Court. You know, it's Emmett Till and that white woman. You know, it is, it, and, and and it make that makes me think of, right, the, at least sentiment of that phrase, you know, she can't use your comb, don't bring her home in my own particular community, right? The, the, the sentiment there is was also because this was Charleston, South Carolina, right? It, it, it's, it's, that, it's that history, okay? Um, that I think people aren't articulating, right? But is, but they are, they're acting on. Go ahead, Michael. I know we've been talking about all of these sort of, this relationship between Black people and white people, uh, but all of the sort of relationships that we've been talking about are mostly straight. And so I Mm -hmm. wanted to really sort of like center a very Black, very gay story uh, that's really important for all of us. Um, But I'm sure you know Jared and Travell, Travell, um, the Lawrence v. Texas case, which was the Supreme Court ruling that 
ended up taking away all of the sodomy bans across the U.S. Um, and a lot of people, I think, don't know the actual inciting incident of that case. And essentially what happened was a Black gay man um, had an on and off boyfriend who was a white gay man. And I don't need to get into all the details, but the Black gay man ended up sleeping with another white gay man. And the on and off boyfriend called the cops and told the cops that the Black gay man was running around the apartment with a gun when he was not, um, in order to essentially get the cops to go over there and lock him up. The cops went over, and then thus the sodomy charge because the cops found them having sex, which was illegal in Texas. Um, so they charged them, and then that sort of ended up laddering its way up to the Supreme Court. The Black gay man ended up getting dropped off the case, so he is not the Lawrence in the case. The man that he was having sex with is the Lawrence in the case. But I say all of that to say this is within that exact same line and, and lineage that you guys are talking about, but it's specifically gay. Mm -hmm. And also it is the reason why sodomy is, is legal in the 50 states, which if you don't know, sodomy is any sex that is not procreative sex. Um, but it's generally, usually when the law gets involved, it's about anal sex. I, I, I say all this to say, like, it is not just, you know, this thing that is black culture at large, but it is very important to specifically our community as well. I think one of the other things that you that you touched on that was interesting to me was like about our feeling of deserving of love, mm -hmm. right? As black mm -hmm. queer people and mm -hmm. like the ways that that kind of shows up for us. I, I remember... I've shared this quote multiple times and I've seen a lot of black queer people share it from Ivan Neuer that says to the black boy in love with another black boy, be patient with yourself, be patient with him. They don't teach us this kind of love. And like, I think about how many black gay men I've been on dates with and like how frustrating it can be to try to connect sometimes and how easily and seamless it can be other times to connect with, with uh, a black queer person in a romantic way. And I think about how when I, I remember the first date that I had with the white guy that I dated. I remember I had never really like taken a white man seriously as far as a date was concerned. And like trying to, I, that first couple of days trying to process like his interest and being like, oh, this is like, this is, this is race, right? Like I'm trying to understand this white person being interested in me and like had a whole lot of processing to do around that at 29. Um, years old. And now as I'm older, I'm thinking back on it and I'm thinking like, oh, that was some, uh, some uh, hierarchical shit about like what you think you deserve and like how white people, how we've placed them on certain kinds of pedestals and all of these other kinds of things. And like, when you mentioned like the deserving piece, I'm like, oh, that's exactly what that was back when I was, when I was dating said unnamed white man. I would like to round back around to the initial question, Trevelle, around why it's in, why it's important. And I think the reality is, is that like this is this sounds very silly to say, but it's kind of like capitalism is at the center of it, mm -hmm. right? It's like the reality is that like we see these things on we've been talking about ads, we've been talking about movies, we've been talking about television, and their reason for doing interracial dating, I would guess as a informed opinion is because as we would all acknowledge we are minorities white people are the majority and so they are giving white people an access point to each of these couples to these brands mm -hmm. right um there's as we all know working in this industry in this business this idea that sort of 
you know, a black on black couple couple is not marketable because the mass majority is not going to be able to see themselves through those people. They can't say, oh, I am Trey Bell. I, you know, I can see myself in this story because of that. And so they have to put Mark with Trey Bell. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, through Mark, the person sees, the, sees themselves in the story. And so that's on one hand. And then what ended up happening is, is then Hollywood sold those images as something that you should be able to see yourself in and see your, see yourself being able to obtain. Um, and so then we began to demand that. We began to demand, oh, well, if I'm supposed to see myself, I see myself with another black man. And so I would like to see that reflected. And and, and what's happening is, is there there's a disconnect mm-hmm. because the business is not about you actually seeing yourself. The business is about selling product. Um, and so they are not inclined to do that until they it's proven to them that people who do not identify, like people who do not see themselves directly in the characters or directly in the people that are in these right. these visuals are going to be able to to connect with it in ways that essentially moves product, right? Is the reality is, is that like, whether it's a black person on the screen or a white person on the screen, the likelihood is that black people can see themselves through a white person on screen simply because we've been having to do that for so long, right? Is that like white is default and so, right? Everything else has a mm-hmm. hyphenate as the quote goes. And so as a result, they know that it's a catch-all that they can put a white person in whatever visual they want to and enough people will see themselves through it that it doesn't matter what the partner is. Right. And the fear is, is that if it's two black people that it will close off, you know, other other sections of, of the audience. And so that's the issue. The issue is that we are putting, you know, we have been sold and told that that we should be able to put our dreams and aspirations through mm-hmm. these visuals. And now we're trying to do that. And the issue is, is that right. they do not reflect those actual dreams and aspirations. I would also say that this this piece um, to like the first question we were talking about of like why does this matter and why do we continue to have these conversations? I think it's a, also a, a similar thing to why we're so critical of a Tyler Perry or of uh, you know black content that comes out and it's not as <laughs> both of y'all just looked up into the side like you mean all the gays that Tyler Perry be booking? No, but I'm talking about listen. That's where the thoughts are. That's where the thoughts. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's up there. That's where the thoughts be. <laughs> right. Be like, where are he going with this? Well, because it's about representation, right? Like, we have so few images of ourselves, especially in the earlier days of Tyler Perry and uh, juxtaposition to now. Like, we only have so many images of ourselves that we can rely on. And so when it's not an image that represents what we uh what we expect or what we identify or what we want to see then we're frustrated by it right or we're it's not our black experience or um it it makes us uncomfortable or there's other conversation around the ways in which the representation that we're getting is not the representation that we want i do before we jump out i do want to just nail down really quickly on something else that duran said in that clip which i think is important here as as well in this conversation which is that you know, in this Byron situation, right? Byron, and oftentimes it feels like, okay, that the Black person who is dating a white person articulates the reason for them dating this white person as something that implicates other Black, gay, and queer people, right? So, like, I don't like the Black, gay, queer people, so I went to the white side. I feel like that is some that's often what people feel like they're responding to. 
And right in the Byron situation, that's that's not what happened. And also in so many other situations of, of folks that get added to a thread, that is not right. Um, the particular t- uh, I- implication, um, but that idea, right, that perhaps self-hatred, that perhaps, you know, internalized whatever, as you were talking about earlier, uh, Michael, I think that that is like, that's something different to be wrestled with, right? As we are having conversations about, you know, representation and interracial dating and, and, and whatnot. And not enough folks, I think, are 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 having that conversation to I didn't never thought that we would be diving deep on Jeremy O'Harris on this podcast but look at us so i just think i w- just wanted to say that i think that that aspect like those the ways in which many of us have internalized right anti-blackness ultimately and how that shows up in our dating patterns is is something else for the community to to wrestle with and then also lastly that you know I don't care what y'all do. I don't care who y'all dating. If it, if it, it don't got no effect on me, what they say, love is love. That's what white gays say. <laughs> Let's be clear. Anyway. You know, I'm going to love who loves me back. Okay. And so I wanted to reiterate that as well. I started making some faces as you was working your way through what you were saying. You always do. That's all right. Because, well, you know, because I be working through it with you. <laughs> and I just wanted to make sure. So... I'm not sure exactly if this was your point, but it seemed like he was saying at first that often it is the case that people are sort of saying this anti-blackness. And I think that often they are not, that in fact, it is often a projection Projection. because a very small group said that. And then people are sort of projecting that ideation onto all black gay men who date white men, which is an issue. And that kind of leads to the second point that I was going to make, which is, that is something that I think a lot about is that, we are calling individuals and their lives, which was something that I tried to get at in that piece that I wrote for you about Justice and Nick, is that we are calling individuals and their, to use their personal lives as vehicles for our goals and aspirations, mm-hmm. which is something we should mm-hmm. never do. It's one thing to say that about whether, you know, films and television and we need this representation here, we need this representation there. That's one thing. But to call someone to task or to to criticize someone or to to demand that they show you the representation that you need when they are trying to live their lives, like their own life. Mm-hmm. That is, I believe, is, is, is extremely I don't even know the words that I want to use at this moment, but like it's, it's just wrong. It's not how this works. These people have to live their lives. And the idea that because they are a public figure that they then have to contort their lives in this way for you to be able to project on them is just completely inaccurate, right? You are buying into this old idea of old Hollywood, which is how they tried to do this, right? They had these very constructed lives in order for people to do that. Um, but like, it's just, it's, it, it was irresponsible and it, it leads to a lot of, you know, mental health issues. Absolutely. Right. It's that like these people should be allowed to live their lives. And if you want to have a conversation about representation, you want to have a conversation about these trends, that's fine. But, but, you know, Byron or, you know, you know, RuPaul, whoever, these people should not be called to task for what you see as a trend and be told that like they are wrong because of this overarching trend that to be clear has existed for decades. Right. 
this has exist, existed for before Byron was born, right? So like, why is he being called to task for, for, for something that he, you know, he just happens to be the example that you chose? Every time one of y'all, every time one of y'all says Byron, I just hear Byron and like that ref, that Medea reference is is just hitting for me. Byron, like a siren. Michael, tell people where they can find out more about the work that you do. Google. Okay. <laughs> we'll take that. I think that'll do it. Yes, I mean I have my. My Twitter is Michael Street. Don't follow me there because I talk a lot of shit. It's M-I-K-E-L-L-E-S-T-R-E-E-T. My website is Michael D Street. It is updated infrequently, but it does have all of the links to all my socials. If you want to read something that I did recently, I recently wrote a cover story of Yasmin Finney, um, a star of Heartstopper um, for mm-hmm. them. So them.us, it's there. Or I think if you probably Google her name, it'll probably come up. So yeah, but Twitter is probably the best place to keep up with me. Follow at your own peril. We appreciate you being here (laughs) and lending your voice to this conversation. I feel like there's a lot to talk about with this and we only got so much time. Mm -hmm. Um, We want to hear from y'all on social media. Hit us up on the social media at Fantai Podcast using the hashtag Fantai Fam. We'll jump in on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And coming up, why y'all hate us so much in listener feedback. We'll get into our dishonorable mentions as well. Don't go anywhere. Fantai's coming right back. Greatest Trek is the podcast for all your modern Star Trek needs. It's funny, informative, and now it's also timely. That's because every Friday, right after the release of a new episode of Strange New Worlds, Picard, Lower Decks, Discovery, or Prodigy, we bring you a review of that episode. There's some great new Star Trek coming up, and we're going to cover all of it. You'll like our show because we're both former video producers, so we bring a lot of insight into the production and filmmaking aspects to these episodes. And we also have a very refined sense of humor, so we make lots of delightful fart jokes along the way. So come see why Greatest Trek is one of the most popular television recap podcasts on all of the internet. Subscribe to Greatest Trek at MaximumFun.org or in the podcast app you're using right now. Hey there, this is Drea Clark. This is Alonzo Duralde. And this is Sparta! Iffy. Listen, I got 300 on the brain. We just watched the movie 300 in honor of our 300th episode of Maximum Film. That's right. And to celebrate this major milestone, we brought back original co-hosts Ricky Carmona and April Wolf. But just for this one episode, right? Oh, Iffy, you know we could never replace you. Some of the voices have changed over the years. Heck, the name of the show has changed too. But through it all, Maximum Film remains... The movie podcast that isn't just a bunch of straight white guys. Deal with it. Find this and all 300 episodes of Maximum Film anytime on MaximumFun.org. Welcome back, beautiful people. Now we're going to get into our listener feedback segment. We have got an email here from friend of the show. He hasn't been on yet. We've got to rectify that, but we've mentioned him a number of times on the show. Ray Love Jr., who uh, wanted to uh, put me under the firing squad. So 
I will read out his email. He says, I was listening to Trayvell's Black History Moment where they highlighted the four Spelman grads who shared the valedictorian honor for their class. And I found their prideful tone to be a stark contrast to how they spoke of their own alma mater just moments ago in the same episode to be intriguing. You speak so highly of Spelman and so begrudgingly about Morehouse, despite them both purporting synonymous problematic ideas and standards for their respective genders within the binary of their colleges. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on how and or why there are differing sentiments for the two. Signed, a graduate of the number one and baddest public HBCU in the nation, Florida A&M University. Um, so this is actually a very simple answer. And that's because actually, if you if you dive into the history of Spelman College, particularly as it relates to LGBTQ, their LGBTQ policies, you actually find that they are one of the, if not the most quote unquote progressive HBCU when it comes to, you know, the policies on their campus as it relates to LGBTQ people, um, as well as uh, specifically, um, I often think about their their policies around trans students, right? Spellman has a long history of platforming, in particular faculty, right, who have been able to push the college um, and students, push the college in the, what I would say, right direction. And the fact of the matter is that Morehouse historically has not. They have made some inroads recently, post my time on the campus, that I think uh, is admirable. Um, and I'm, I'm over, I, I'm, I'm, what's the word, um, excited, you know, pleased with the steps that Morehouse in particular has taken and is taking. Stay tuned because I got something coming up for you. But the history is the history. And I think, not I think, that is why I articulate it in the ways that I, 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 I articulate it. And so, yeah, there it is. And then you have a tweet here, Jared, from somebody. I just want to really quickly, I got a tweet from at Amba Darling on Twitter, um, who has named her named themselves Jamiroquai. And there is a video here about something that is rooted in white supremacy and racism that I did not see coming. I, apparently, Travell, how do you feel about butter pecan ice cream? I mean, I, I don't feel. I have eaten it before, if that's what you mean. Do your parent or grandparents eat it when you were younger or even now? Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I feel like it's a very popular flavor amongst black folks. Apparently rated and rooted in racism. We'll put the link into the description so you can see the video on Twitter. Everything's rooted in racism. I'm not surprised. But everything is rooted in racism. Apparently like black people according to this TikTok video um weren't allowed to have vanilla ice cream. It becomes a whole situation with pecans. Um, shout out to Amber Darling for t tagging me in this tweet. Um, Pecans. I said what I said, and I meant it. And I said what I said, and I meant it too. First of all, it's now time for our dishonorable mentions, okay? These are the stories of people that got our attention this week. Either that deserve a call out for their good or for their stupid. What, you still got something to say? That nose is still real high. I said what I said already, okay? <laughs> I want to give a shout out. You just mentioned Ray, who's friend of the show. And Ray is uh, part of our team here in, in uh, at NABJLA. And Ray came over to my house recently and was here for a work session and left me with a book um, and was like, you need to read the first chapter tonight before you go to bed. And I was like, 
sweetness, I love you. It's not going to happen tonight. But I have read the started reading the book since. It's called Boys Come First. It is by Aaron Foley. And like, it is about these Black queer men and their story. And I'm only into the second chapter. But like, baby, when I tell you this first chapter, after I read it, I was like, oh, I think that Ray was reading me. Right? Because this character is way too in my business. I mean, that's usually what happens. That's usually what happens when somebody tell you to read a very specific passage <laughs> of a book. Exactly. Um, but the the book is really, really fantastic. And like I haven't read a novel in so long. And so I'm I'm enjoying getting into it. Um, so go check out Aaron Foley's Boys Come First and and uh, give it a read and, and shout out to them. I also want to give a shout out to Terrell Grice and Kiki Palmer. The Terrell Grice, who has the Terrell show over on YouTube, has a new interview out with Kiki Palmer. And you know, this is a Kiki Palmer Stan account. And so that interview with Kiki is amazing. Um, we'll have the link to the uh, interview in our episode description. But the episode of the show is really, really fantastic. And she's also there to promote her new album called Big Boss, which I was listening to over the weekend. And I was like, okay, Kiki, like this album is something that you can just put on and enjoy and play it from front to back. And like, if anyone is a Kiki Palmer fan like we are around here, I'm sure that you're going to enjoy the album. So go check out her new album. It's called Big Boss, wherever um, you get your music. She has a visual um, that goes along with it as well. Check that out. And go check out The Terrell Show over on Instagram. Uh, excuse me, on uh, YouTube. Finally, I want to give a shout out to a show over on Max, which we'll get used to saying now. Um, it's called Seeking Brother Husband. Now, that's a lot of title. Um, <laughs> so for those of you that are familiar with the sister wives shows over the years about um, polygamous marriages and those kinds of things, this is kind of a similar um, focus, but it's focused on women who are in um, non-monogamous and polyamorous relationships. And someone pointed out to me this past weekend, and I've, I ate it up. And what was actually interesting to me about this is there are multiple Black relationships on this show, which is something you don't often see when we're discussing non-monogamy and polyamory and, and non-traditional uh, relationships. So check out Seeking Brother Husband on Max. Really, really fantastic show. Um, I just have two honorable mentions or two mentions. You know, I recently restarted uh, rewatching, not rewatching, but watching the second season of Bel Air on the Peacock. Um, and the first season was great. I, I, I do think that that's safe to say. And the second season is living up to the hype. And you know, sometimes that second season, you know, she drops off. You know, after first Ooh. the first season hype. So just wanted to shout out that show as something that I'm really enjoying. And then lastly, you know, for any. Um, of the black journalists that might be listening to this here podcast one don't know why you are doing that but hey um i am running for president of the national association of black journalists um if you are out there listening and what? you shut up <laughs> and you would like to know what i'm interested in doing for the organization you can check out travelanderson.com slash travel for president the number four not f-o-r um to see a little bit about my campaign and all of that just wanted to drop that here for the people who uh might be listening and who might be uh interested in that now it is okay go ahead you got something to say I should say, as a person who's working on your opponent's campaign <laughs> um, and really, really hoping to see you fail. Now watch. Now watch. That campaign is going to take that bit right there. <laughs> and they're going to cut it out. I'm just kidding. They would never do that. They would never do that. That's the clip? 
<laughs> That's the clip. Got it. Okay. Oh, well, I should say, as president here in Los Angeles, I am a huge supporter of you and running for national president and want to make sure that I say that very publicly, that your candidacy as president for the national organization, I think while it is historic and groundbreaking and all of those things, I think it's also more important than it is anything else. Um, and I think that the ways that you've demonstrated the, your belief system about NABJ from a local standpoint and also the way that's translated um, to the national stage as well has been really vital to what I see as like the future of the organization, both nationally and from our chapter perspective. So for people that are out there voting, and there, I'm sure there are plenty of Black journalists who are listening because we are an award-winning journalist. We are award-winning journalists on a podcast that has won awards. Um, I would say that I think it's it's really important that uh, for those of you that are part of the organization or considering being part of the organization, thinking about a candidate like Ed Travell is important. And we, we can, we'll be talking about that more uh, in the coming uh, weeks and months as this election drags on will we leave me alone oh, get somebody else to do just it just kidding all right um <laughs> absolutely uh and if you are a black journalist and you're listening and you would like more information about my campaign feel free to reach out okay please and thank you all right now it is time for black history is happening every This week, we are going to give this honor to Jesse Maple Patton, who was a cinematographer and director who broke barriers for Black women in film in particular, as she was most notably the first Black American woman to direct an independent feature-length film, 1981's Will. Before that, Maple was also the first Black woman to be admitted into the International Photographers of Motion Picture and Television Union in the 70s. After Will, Maple went on to direct twice as nice in 1989 along with a number of documentaries she passed away on may 30th of this year survived by her husband leroy daughter audrey grandson nigel five sisters two adopted daughters and several nieces and nephews and nibblings i am sure she has this quote that we want to leave you with be blessed Hug the hugless, love the loveless, feed the hungry, help the helpless, encourage the sad, and always give an encouraging word. Shout out to Jesse Maple Patton and all of the history that you've made. As we get ready to get up out of here, we want to let y'all know about a couple of things. Number one, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, like more than half of you usually are, um, you can go over to the Apple Podcast app and hit browse and check out uh, Illuminating Our Perspectives. Our Pride Perspectives curated playlist is over on Apple Podcasts right now. You can check out a curated list of our favorite podcasts that uplift LGBTQ voices and also like episodes of this show that we have have felt were really, really special. So you can check out all of that over on the Apple Podcast app. We've put a lot of work into this. The The meetings were many and lengthy about like who goes into what different categories and all these things. So for those of you that listen to podcasts, you can check out the various different things that we um, were suggesting over there. And also over on We See Each Other, the podcast, we are on episode five of nine. And this week's episode is all about the boys. It's about trans masculine representation. It features an interview with the legend himself, Brian Michael Smith, who made history as the first black man who is trans to have a series regular role on television on 911 Lone Star. It's a really, really, really good episode. I keep saying that, but like the episodes actually get better and not just because it's my work. Like these are really great episodes. With that, 
we gonna get the hell on out here y'all Yes, for those of you that are checking us out on YouTube, head over to fantipodcast.com. You can check out, we have three whole seasons of other shows that happened before we ever landed on YouTube. Fantipodcast.com is the best way to get information on all that. If you have a comment or a suggestion about this week's show, we're at fantipodcast on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. You can use the hashtag fantifam and jump into the conversation, or you can shoot us an email. Fanti at maximumfun.org is the way to reach us, and we might respond to your letter here on the air. Oh, yes. Okay. And if you would like to financially contribute to all of this wondrousness that we provide you, you can help us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org slash join. Our music is brought to you every week by Corice. That's C-O-R dot E-C-E, wherever you get slate, worthy, and Grammy Award winning music. Our graphics are by Ashley Wynn and folks at Moonhouse Creative. Our editor is Anne-Marie Huber, and our producer is Palmira Muniz. Boop, boop, boop. It gets worse. It gets worse every week, Jerry. You don't be you don't be practicing. No, this is your fault. You don't be practicing. Yeah, we got to figure out what we want it to be. It's just got to sound better. You be sounding like a, a dying car what or something. What do you want out of the Palmyra acknowledgement at the end? Which what, what should we do with that? That's my point exactly. Our singer producer is <laughs> Laura Sorge. <laughs> This is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported. We'll jump in on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Keep going. Oh, I saw Palmyra pop up. She's just here because you're wrapping up here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.